<clears throat> this is a Romy cast. Never get tired of being Beatles. I play the drums, and I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Can we just have a little less guitar in here for oh, that's that's all away. Away. Yes, not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me, and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. I will mention that this is the award-winning Walrus Was Paul podcast. Uh, the podcast was voted winner, outstanding music series at the 2022 Canadian Podcast Awards. My guest today is Montreal singer and songwriter Max Como. Max has put out three full-length LPs as well as some EPs and singles. And I'll say this about his work. It is diverse. Looking for singer-songwriter introspection? It's there. Something with a dance groove to it? Check out his 2020 EP called Try. And how about jazz-flavored cover versions of some Paul McCartney deep cuts? Well, you'll find those on his latest album called Play McCartney. You can find Max on Facebook as well as on Bandcamp. Uh, Bandcamp, in my opinion, is the place to go. He has all of his work there, his lyrics, and he even gives you background to many of the songs. So that's the place to go to get information on Max. Uh, lots of info on his work, and you have the opportunity to buy it as well. You can also find Max on Instagram. You can find this podcast at a bunch of places. One place is the website, romycast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com. And if you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. This is the 20th episode of Series 3. You can find all of the other Series 3 episodes as well as all of the episodes from Series 1 and Series 2 at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. So let's bring in Max Como, musician, Beatles fan, all set to talk about one of his favorite Paul McCartney albums, 1973's Red Rose Speedway. Max, thanks for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. Most definitely happy to be here on uh, The Walrus Was Paul. Such a fan of the show, so it's an honor to be here. I remember, uh, I think it was Jerry Legere that joked that uh, he uh, was applying to be your co-host. And uh, yeah, I, I'm applying to be your co-host as well. I mean, I, I'm such a fan of the show. Hey, well, thanks. That's great to hear. I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it. And I hope that, uh, dear listener, uh, you'll hear some of Max's music and uh, check it out on Bandcamp. I have, uh, and there's some really good stuff there, especially 
one album and you'll understand i mean they're all fine but the one we're going to talk about a little bit later on in the show and you'll it'll all come together you will understand uh you know i'm really going to enjoy this because um this is one of those albums that i was you know, always hoping that a guest would snag and I, I can't believe nobody has at this point there are a few mccartney gems that nobody's touched but I really like Red Rose Speedway. So what made you choose this record and what are your first memories of Red Rose Speedway? First of all, I mean, what a year 1973 was for Beatles fans. I mean, each and every one of them are firing on all cylinders. Um, You know, you've got Ringo who releases by far the most important and best album of his solo career. You have George who releases um, Living in the Material World, which is also a really fantastic album. You have John that releases Mind Games, which has has some fantastic moments on it. Um, Loved your podcast uh, with uh, Jerry regarding that album. Um, And you've got Paul, who not only gives us Red Rose Speedway, which we'll be going in-depth about, but also gives us Live and Let Die a few months later, and then Band on the Run come December. 1973. And on top of all that, you have the Red and Blue album coming out that year, um, which are just absolute gateway drugs into the Beatles for so many people, not only the 70s generation, but also 80s and 90s kids, including myself that got into the Beatles in the mid 90s mainly because of the anthology. I mean, I turned to the Red and Blue album immediately because I wanted to dive deep into not only the hits, but some of the best album cuts. And so I think those are just great representations of the body of work. And I mean, so what a great Beatle year 1973 was, despite the fact that the band wasn't together. They were together in so many ways, and they're all over the Ringo album. And so in, in some way, they're, they're sort of back together, in a sense. Um, and I just think, I mean, McCartney's output in 73, it might be the greatest year of his career. Uh, certainly post-Beatles, it's a top contender kind of year. Yeah, and, and those first few years... Uh, his latter years in the Beatles, I mean, he's always been a great vocalist, but I really think he came into his own those last uh, couple of albums with the Beatles. Uh, Absolutely. You know, when, you know, when you think of the uh, his his great vocal work in I've Got a Feeling with John Lennon. Uh, yeah, that's uh, and, exactly the one yeah, I was thinking yeah. of. And then you get into, you know, Ram uh, and and uh, and this album, too. There's a couple of great vocal tracks. but what Most definitely. But what do you remember? Do you have a distinct memory of Red Rose Speedway? Way hearing it, did, like, did you go and buy it? Did you get it as a gift? I, Tell me. I, I actually do, and I still have the first copy I got of it, which I got at HMV downtown, and I still have the little receipt inside the box, which I used to do as a Beatle nerd. So, and I bought it in 2000 on the 23rd of November 2000, which doesn't seem like all that long ago, and it's very late in the game considering that it was an album that came out, you know, seven years before I was even born. Um, and when I first bought it, uh, my initial impression that was that it was a very soft album. I still think it's a pretty soft album. There are no real uh, balls-out kind of rockers on Red Rose Speedway. But the thing I absolutely loved about the album is it felt like the warmest, safest 
comfort blanket I'd ever heard on record. Um, something about Paul's vocals, something about the choice of songs. There's a positivity uh, and a richness to the arrangement of the albums. And it's an album that's easy to criticize. And by all means, uh, even though I consider myself a McCartney fanatic, I'll be the first to recognize some of the failings, some of the, the weaker points and, and, and whatnot. I am by no means saying that it's a perfect album, but I think it's the most comforting, sweetest, and most magical of his uh, early 70s albums. And I mean, I adore Ram. I absolutely love the eponymous uh, debut, the McCartney album. Absolutely love it. Um, and I quite enjoy Wildlife. It took me a while to get into that album. Side One was a, a challenge for years, I have to admit. Uh, but here's the other thing that I do want to mention before we go any further into Red Rose Speedway. One of the fascinating things about being a Beatle fan and a McCartney solo fan and 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 all of them is that of course the estates or you know the the people around them will do these reissues periodically and um they're not rewriting history but they're allowing us a chance to reappraise these albums and in 2018 when McCartney put out his archive edition of Red Rose Speedway I bought it same as I did every single box set and could I afford it at the time? I don't know. I, I was probably tied on money, but it's McCartney, and so I had to get it. And, um, you know, diving into the book, diving into the songs that could have been on the album and that were cut out because there was a possibility of releasing it as a double album, which I honestly think was a missed opportunity, uh, which we'll, we'll go further into. But um, it gives you a chance to reappraise these albums, and you take a step back and realize man, this is incredible. And, and the fact that the, the man puts out this album and it's considered one of his weaker albums by most, you know? Um, you'll never hear people heaping praise upon it the way they do Band on the Run. And yet it's the very same guy. It's only a few months apart. Um, the focus and the state of mind was clearly different. And the confidence level, I think, was different as well. I think, you know, Band on the Run was confrontational with the loss of uh, of the drummer and, and Henry McCulloch on guitar, Denny Sywell on drums. So, you know, he wanted to prove he was gung-ho. But, I mean, man, Red Rose Speedway, some bands, that would be the album of their career. I mean, you wouldn't best that album for, for many artists. I mean, it's got my love on it. What, what else can we say? Yeah, there's the, and that's the, the, uh, I'm a massive McCartney fan, not surprisingly. And that's the, there are, there are albums he has done that are eminently forgettable, but there will be one or two tracks on there that any, always, any songwriter, uh, and you can speak as a songwriter, would give their left and right one to have written absolutely just, just that one song, right? Yes. So, yes. Uh, your point is well taken. Um, yeah, my, my, 
Red Rose Speedway story is I remember getting it uh, I probably about a year after it came out. So I would have been uh, 12, 13 years old. And like somebody that age, uh, I got it, A, because it was a, an ex-Beatle, but uh, also because uh, there was a booklet inside. Uh, it was a great-looking cover, and that attracted me to it. And uh, I, I, yeah. I, I still I still, uh, I, I still have my original copy somewhere and with the, with the Braille right. on the back and the message to Stevie Wonder. Yes, and we'll absolutely. talk about that later. All right, so before we dive into this, uh, this baby track by track, um, I just want to give you a little bit of context. And you threw some great stuff out there, which, uh, which I'll touch on as well. Uh, so pour yourself a cup of tea, dear listener, and let me just sort of let you know what was going on at the time. It's So we're in early 1972. Let's start there. And Paul McCartney, no longer with the Beatles, had already released a solo record, McCartney, in 1970, after which he released Ram in May of 71. And he'd formed a new band, Wings, and released Wildlife in December of 71. And just as an aside, uh, as, uh, as Max was saying a moment ago, uh, a great time to be a Beatles fan. So just consider this. 1970, the Let It Be album comes out in May. All Things Must Pass comes out in November. John Lennon Plastic Ono Band comes out in December. Sentimental Journey and Bukus of Blues by Ringo come out in April and September, respectively. So that's 1970. 71, McCartney releases Ram in May. Lennon comes out with Imagine in September. And then McCartney drops Wildlife, drops, as the kids say, uh, drops Wildlife (laughs) in December. So that's 71. So as 72 begins, Wings picks up lead guitarist Henry McCulloch, ex of Joe Cocker's backing group, The Grease Band. McCulloch came into McCartney's orbit via Wings bandmate Denny Lane. Uh, McCartney had a big idea to start the year he wanted wings to become a great live band and thus enter mcculloch who had a reputation as being a great live player so they start rehearsals in january of 72 uh at an old hangout of uh, paul mccartney and the beatles and the uh, sort of london uh, cool people of the day a pub called the scotch of saint james which closed and it's opened again if you want to try to go visit the place. Uh, In February, McCartney was inspired to write a song in response to the shooting of several Irish civil rights protesters by British soldiers in Belfast, what has darkly become known as Bloody Sunday. Uh, work was started on the very spontaneous work on February 1st, 1972. That was just a couple of days after the shootings. And without a doubt, the most overtly political song ever done by McCartney. It was Rush released later that month and immediately banned by the BBC, uh, giving it instant credibility. Also in February, McCartney and Wings undertake an 11-day university tour in the UK. Uh, Now, the band was unpolished and clearly they were a work in progress. And there's one great story from the show uh, from a gig in Leeds on February 16th, 1972. So here's the story. You've got Linda, uh, who I don't think, you know, God rest your soul, would ever be considered an ace keyboard player. So this is very Mm -hmm. early days of her with the band playing keys. And she froze during the piano intro for the song Wildlife. And as the story goes, the band sort of stood there waiting for her to to start playing her part so they could start the song. So Paul, and just a lovely moment, I would have loved to have seen it, he walks over to try to help her out. But he has a memory block as well. 
And then finally, it jumps into Linda's mind. She recalls the lost notes, and she starts her bit, and the band kicks into gear. Right, right. So that was kind of what you were getting at that stage. Fair enough. They're a developing band. Uh, There were two European tours for Wings, the first one in July, featuring eight shows in 13 days, the second one in August, featuring 17 shows in 24 days. And then the rest of the year featured a couple of other singles, the, uh, the Bizarre Mary Had a Little Lamb, uh, yeah, a very bizarre. I mean, I en- I enjoy it, but it's a guilty pleasure at best, and it's a song that I would never share with a McCartney uh, skeptical. You know, if you're skeptical about McCartney, I'm not going to impose that one on you. Not a chance. Yeah, just a weird one. But he does very. that. Um, no, the- he loves to tell the story of Pete Townsend coming to him backstage and telling him that was his daughter's favorite song. He loves telling that story because it gives it a sort of rock and roll credibility. It gives it, yeah. <laughs> I watched, uh, I watched back the uh, James Paul McCartney ATV special, right? From yes. last, just to prepare for our conversation. Yes. I, I hadn't watched it in a few years, and the scene where the band are are playing "Mary Had a Little Lamb," I swear, you can almost see Henry McCulloch and Denny Lane yep. looking so yep. uncomfortable. Like, what, absolutely, what the f are we? doing here you know this exactly is, this is not rock and roll such uh, an odd choice yeah yeah it, but it, but th- those were sort of the beginnings of the red rose speedway sessions and we know that because glenn johns was the producer engineer on the first set of red rose speedway tracks as he is on that track uh mary had a little lamb high 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 was the other single recorded that year in november great balls out rocker um, absolutely B- Side a bit of reggae with Sea Moon. Uh, and then McCartney also collaborates with George Martin on a, a little song called Live and Let Die, which was uh, <laughs> a number one single uh, recorded in either October or November of 72 uh, and then released the following year in June of 73 with the James Bond movie of the same title. So, And it, a song that uh, has been on his every set list uh, ever since, really. Loves it. <laughs> There's no way. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way he's taking that song off the set list anytime. Clearly loves the song you know again absolutely because you're right it's on every tour uh so it was just after that first tour speaking of tours the february university tour where the band head into olympic studios in barnes uh which is uh, for those of you who don't know london it's it's kind of i guess i'd call it a suburb of west london very nice area uh south of the thames and they go there to begin work on a new album at the helm as i mentioned was uh, as co-producer and engineer glenn johns who McCartney and the Beatles had worked with on the Get Back sessions. Johns was a, a hot producer at the time. He, he worked with the Stones, Led Zepp, Bob Dylan, the band, the Who, the Eagles, Faces, Neil Young. Big guy. Uh, there's a story verified years later by Johns. I'm quoting Johns here. He says... Uh, the story about Paul walking into the control room on the first day and saying, I want you to treat me like the bass player in the band, not Paul McCartney of the Beatles, is true, says Johns many years later. But Johns was nonetheless frustrated by those early sessions, in part because he didn't believe that the band were ready to make another record. Uh, quoting him again, they were just getting high and jamming, you know? He recalls now, and he eventually said, I'm out of here, and he left the sessions. Uh, recording sessions 
take place between March of 72 and January of 73 at Olympic Sound, Trident Studios in Soho, Air Studios, George Martin Studios, and EMI Studios, now known as Abbey Road Studios. Also, a couple of tracks, Get On The Right Thing and Little Lamb Dragonfly, that were kicking around from RAM sessions and were recorded in New York City. So the initial plan, as you mentioned earlier, Max, was a double album, uh, and a track order and a mock-up was prepared for January 30th, 1973. They have a listening session at Studio 2 at EMI. An 18-track version of the album is put together, ready for mastering and stamping on February the 6th. However, sometime between that date and the 16th of February, it was decided to trim the album down to the single nine-track version. Um... Denny Lane said years later, I thought Red Rose Speedway was good as a double album and more of a showcase for the band. So when it came out as a single album, I didn't like it as much as Ram. You think there was a case there for a double album as well, eh? I think there was a case. And I don't know that that it would have sold uh, a lot more or that it would have sold less. But the thing is, is that McCarkin was adamant about making this about wings. And first obstacle to that is he's told, well, this album, because of the relative sort of disappointment of the sales with wildlife, we're going to label this Paul McCartney and wings. So that's the first blow against, if you will, the Wings ideal of it being a band where McCartney is just a member. But then the second big blow is the fact that the double album would have included at least one Denny Lane vocal. He has this song, I Would Only Smile, which is a great little, very 70s sounding gem. It's a really beautiful, pretty Denny Lane song. Great vocal from him. That would have been not an album filler. That would have been a highlight for many people had that song come out. And then you have Linda, who has Seaside Woman, which is a really fun little reggae song, which every single person I've played it for just gets a kick out of it. They, They might chuckle here and there because it is a little, you know, it's a little bit left of center or whatnot, but there's something magical about a seaside woman and it would have been a gem on the album, much more so than Cook of the House a few years later, which is just pure filler. Seaside Woman is actually really entertaining. And again, that would have told uh, the record buying public, this is not Paul McCartney and Wings. This is Wings. And Wings features, yes, Paul McCartney, but it also features Denny Lane and it also features Linda McCartney. And the final product does not feature any of them. And the album cover, which love it or hate it, the album covers a little silly and it features none other than Paul McCartney and not a single other member of Wings. I mean, in the packaging, plenty of pictures of all of them. But the album cover says this is a McCartney solo album and Wings is a bit of an afterthought. Yeah, I, I, wa- I find it. I, well, and I agree with you. I, I wonder uh, I wonder if that was a conscious decision on the part of McCartney, which would completely contradict the spirit of Wings at that stage, or whether it was a decision based on the record company coming to him saying, look, this last Wings album you did stiffed, we couldn't give it away, so this time you're going to do it our way, and we we want you on the cover front and center, we don't want all these other guys. I wonder. 
I, you know, I think it's probably a mix of both. Uh, you know, McCartney, as much as I adore him, th there is, of course, an ego thing there. And, you know, Glenn Johns himself said, yeah, he, as you mentioned, he came in saying, I'm, I'm the bass player in this band. But, you know, hours later or days later, I mean, it was clear that McCartney was the one calling the shots. This is, he's not just the bass player. Okay. Like, let's, let's be clear here. Everybody knows. He's Paul um, McCartney. And he's Paul yes, McCartney. he's Paul McCartney. Yeah. He's Paul McCartney. I mean, you know, need I say more? Need we say more? So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I bet it's 50 50, though. The record company probably wanted his name and face up there. And I think he probably did as well and wanted to make sure that, you know, it was going to be a solid collection of songs. But I do think it's a missed opportunity. Much as I adore the album, and I really do adore it, I do see the missed opportunity there. Okay, so, and just another bit here, uh, digging into the weeds. So even when they trimmed it down uh, to a nine-track version, so the initial running order was different from the one we came to know. So side one, as you probably know, if you're familiar with the album, it's Big Barn Bed, My Love, Get On The Right Thing, One More Kiss, and Little Lamb Dragonfly. On the initial running order, uh, the sequencing was Big Barn Bed, My Love, Get on the right thing, so all the same. Then Country Dreamer jumps in there, which didn't make the final cut. And then the medley, which closed out side two on the on the release version. On side two, just to refresh your memory, uh, release version, you have Single Pigeon, When the Night, Loop, First Indian on the Moon, and then the medley. Uh, on the initial running order, he opened with Single Pigeon. Then One More Kiss jumps in there. Uh, Night Out, a song that didn't make the final cut. Seaside Woman, which you were talking about a few moments ago, didn't make the final cut. Mama's Little Girl, another one that didn't make the final cut. Very pretty song. Tragedy. And then Little Lamb Dragonfly. So very different, The even just the yes. initial nine-track album from what ended up being released. It did come out on May 4th, 1973. Uh, the Beatles' Red and Blue albums had just been released on April 2nd, 73. So as you talked off the top, Max, a lot of Beatles product out there. George Harrison's Living in the Material World comes out at the end of May. So just weeks after... Uh, after uh, Paul McCartney drops his. And then John Lennon comes out with Mind Games in November. Ringo releases Ringo also in November, pretty much head-to-head -head with John. So, yeah, what a year. Uh, so the album comes out April 30th in the U.S., reaches number one in the Billboard 200, spending a total of 31 weeks on the chart. Sold well. People liked it. Uh, Red Rose Speedway was issued May 4th in the UK. It peaked at number five and spent 16 weeks altogether in the charts. So not quite as well received in the UK. In Canada, the album entered the chart at 90, climbed its way up to number two on June 23rd, 73. It hovered at two for two weeks. It was kept out of the top spot by George Harrison's Living in the Material World. Incredible, yeah. incredible. Yeah. So you have Beatles. Other big albums, just uh, context is everything. Other big albums on the chart at that time. So we're talking June, July, 73, uh, at the time when Red Rose is, is lodged there at number two. You have the Beatles Blue and Red, both still up there in the charts. Dark Side of the Moon, one of the greatest. Made Unbelievable. In Made in Japan by Deep Purple. Uh, Houses of the Holy by Led Zeppelin. Uh, yes Songs, uh, the, the prog rock 
classic live album by Yes, uh, and then a little uh, CanCon, uh, an album called Danny's Song by Anne Murray. And here's a blast from the past. Uh, Johnny Winter had an album out, Still Alive and Well. Uh, so wow. that's incredible. Uh, as per chartmasters.org, global physical sales of the album when it was released, 2.13 million copies. Uh, for context, his biggest solo album, Band in the Run, sold 8.63 million physical copies. Uh, other big sellers, Post Beatles, McCartney, 4.3 million, Ram, 3.96 million, Tug of War, 4.1 million, uh, Speed of Sound, London Town, 3.8 million. So this album album did not sell nearly as well as many of the other uh, big albums in his catalog. What would you guess? This is I'm putting this on the tee for you. Take out your driver and uh, blast it down the middle of the fairway. The most streamed song off the album would be... Well, I would guess my love. That ding, 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 ding. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yes. Uh, over 10 million streams of that song. Uh, just a couple of quotes from McCartney and uh, and Linda. Um, McCartney in a 1977 interview said, Red Rose, yes. Speed- yeah, Red Rose Speedway was the live act. I mean, the album's okay. It has its moments, but nothing approaching the impact of the band in person. Uh, after I'd heard Wildlife, I thought, hell, we've really blown it here. And the next one after that, Red Rose Speedway, I couldn't stand. He said that in 1977. But then in 2018, he had this to say it sounds more professional to me it sounds like it's putting in more effort but it's less rebellious than wildlife uh, and he has fond memories of uh, my love and one more kiss a couple of songs he rates from the album he said that many years later linda right uh in 1976 linda said red rose speedway was such a non-confident record there was my love but something was missing we needed a heavier sound it was a terribly unsure period so they were lukewarm on it themselves by the sounds of it yeah and i mean it's it's a little bit disappointing and i can understand denny lane's uh and i think denny sywell's frustration as well and probably henry mcculloch that they did have heavier material night out is a, a balls out rocker um it's a little long but i think if he had cut it up in like two little links to open and maybe close the album the way he tends to do i think that could have been interesting he he had The Mess, which was a live song that he was doing at the time, which is a great rocker. He had um, Best Friend, which was clearly a message to John. And it's it's a, a pretty basic rocker, but it's a rocker. And there are no, as we're going to see track by track, there are no real rockers on Red Rose Speedway. High, high, high the previous year. That's a rocker. You mentioned it. It really, I mean, it's it's get back for the 70s or, or for 72 or whatever. Um, but that's missing from Red Rose Speedway. So I, I get the, it's a non-confident record because it sounds shy. It sounds almost just too sweet. Yeah. Well, you, you know, if, again, going back to that James Paul McCartney TV special, it's on YouTube, uh, dear listener, if you want to look for it. But I'm glad I watched it to prepare for our chat uh, because I'd forgotten about the little in concert section where they play right. the mess. Uh, he does a rips through a version of Long Tall Sally. And there's a couple of other songs they do. And it's a live, live performance, live audience there. And 
the thing that struck me when I watched it is, wow, like they were a kick-ass live rock and roll band. And that does not come across on uh, Red Rose Speedway at all. Yet it was the same band. It really doesn't come across. And he released this live album from 72 on uh, the archive edition of both Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway together. Now, I couldn't afford that, but I got, uh, you know, a, a, a fellow friend to send me the MP3s of that live show. And yeah, they were a rip-roaring, great live band. It probably took them a while. And sure, they probably lacked confidence in their first few performances, but, but they found their sound and Denny Sywell as a drummer is one of the best drummers that's ever worked with Paul as far as I'm concerned really serves the songs um, great great uh, drumming and yeah it's it's a shame as much as I adore Red Rose Speedway it's a shame that they don't touch on that more rocking side all right well let's dig into this sucker max it's going to be fun to talk about so let's pull it out and put it on the virtual turntable and it is side one cut one one of my favorite tracks in the album big barn bed great because it recalls a, a little excerpt we hear on Ram where at the end of the Ram on reprise he sings who's that coming round that corner who's that coming around the bend um, and then you know that becomes this song Big Barn Bed And it's not the most confident uh, opener. It's not. It's not quite back in the USSR. It's. It's certainly not band on the run. But it's got such a groove to it. And the more the song goes along, the more it chugs along. By the end, you're stomping your foot, and you're into it. And the performance on James Paul McCartney, which which opens that special, is great. It's absolutely great. The band is really rocking it. They're clearly having fun with it. Um, and yeah, it's just one of those great sort of swampy songs that you kind of want to awkward dance to. It's it's fun. I, 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 I love Big Barn Bed. Uh, I do too. I think it's a great album opener. And as you pointed out, it is also the show opener for the James Paul McCartney special. Uh, they're in front of a group of monitors and uh, the curtains open and they're playing the song and it's used to visually introduce each of the members of the band. Uh, so they go through and you have a 
close-up shot of, of Denny Sywell, and it has, you know, name, where he was born, etc. And, of course, it ends with Paul McCartney. And then uh, there's a section where it says comment, and some of them have, you know, written something. Or, and McCartney just goes, hello, everyone. And then yes. into the, it's, it's a really cool moment. Uh, it but, really is. Uh, the whole song sort of chugs along. It's um, it, And you'll, uh, you'll pick this up more so than me being a musician. Uh, the whole song in F major and plays on the basic triad of that chord which is which is kind of interesting and the verses and the refrain all with the same chord progression and it's driven along uh tremendously by the, what 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 else McCartney's bass and he also plays the piano yeah, absolutely. And I mean, those lyrics, weeping on a willow, sleeping on a pillow, leaping armadillo. Yeah, it means nothing, but it sounds fantastic. And it tickles your ears. It, it tickles my ears, that's for sure. And it's just sort of like, I don't know, it, it, it's got a, a childlike um, feeling about it. But it, it's just so much fun. And it's completely unpretentious, you know? And and that's one thing I want to mention. You were mentioning the great albums of 73, Houses of the Holy, Dark Side of the Moon. These are very important rock records, you know? These are rock records that are going to change your way of seeing the world. Whereas Red Rose Speedway is really just having fun. It's friends getting together, jamming, perhaps rolling a doobie, and just you know having fun it is not a self-serious album i don't think uh, for the most part and it's certainly not a very serious opener it's a fun jam between friends and and it's very welcoming i mean you know it makes you want to dive into the album no, that's a great point by you, and it does. It kind of play again. I always love to look at the big picture because context is everything. So, and you're right. You look at that year. Like I picked up Dark Side of the Moon. Wow, what an album! Yep. Still blows mm-hmm. my mind. Houses it of the still Holy. blows my mind. Yeah, uh, you know, like there's some great albums, and I want to, you know, like you're into some important records in that era. I'm not sure. I can't remember whether what's going on was '71 or '73, but it's in '71. Yeah. So you got yeah. what's going on. And then you've got Sly and the right. Family Stone. There's a riot going on. So there's some important records then. And you're right. This is not that. Uh, and maybe that's one of the reasons it was harshly judged by the critics. You know? Yeah. Could well you know, they, they expect him to make this great statement. But not every song is going to be a day in the life. Not every song is going to be, you know, this epic. Uh, affirmation of life and it doesn't need to either it's rock and roll so we start off with big barn bed and uh, just a fun song to kick it off and go into uh the song that was advanced released as a single and massive massive hit lovely song my love and when i go away i know my heart can stay understood it's in the hands of my
one of my mom's favorite songs, and I mean, uh, the, it'll always remind me of my song of my mom, just because I, I think she used to even sing that to us as kids, kind of as a lullaby. Aww. She certainly sang uh, something to us from uh, Abbey Road, but I think she sang "My Love" as well. Um, "My Love" is just a beautiful song, and I've had a chance to see him perform it live uh, on a few occasions. It's the one song from this album that he's pretty much kept on his set list fairly consistently. It, it drops out once in a while, but he, he tends to go back to it. It's his ultimate or one of his ultimate odes to Linda. And it's just beautiful. The one thing about my love, which, which does uh, confuse me a bit, is its placement on the album. You know, we talk about sequencing an album. It's a little bit odd that it comes so early on the album. I mean, something is number two on Abbey Road. And so, you know, and, and some people have, have said, um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, but there's this great writer from Rolling Stone who says that My Love is Paul's attempt at writing George Harrison's something all these years later. I don't know if I really hear that, but the, its placement on the album is a little odd to me. I know that if I had sequenced the album, I might have saved that a little bit more, you know, for track four, track six, maybe uh, a, a side closer, because you've just had Big Barn Bed, which has sort of like set you off on this adventure. And my love sort of, you know, calms things down very early on in the game. But there's no denying the the melody of that song. Uh, one thing that kills me about my love that I have to mention is how much Paul loves to share that anecdote about the guitar solo. He has basically written out a guitar solo for Henry McCulloch to play. And they're recording the song live in the studio with orchestra, which to me is just blows my mind. I've obviously I've never had the the opportunity to play with a full live orchestra. And here they are in the studio with a full live orchestra. And after a few takes, Henry McCulloch comes over to Paul McCartney and, and Paul has told this story millions of times. And he says to him, listen, Paul, I think I have an idea for the solo. Can you let me just fly with it? And can you let me do what I think should be the solo on this song? And Paul, through some sort of, you know, mystical miracle, decides to sort of let go of the sort of maybe slightly control freak side of his musical personality and says to Henry McCulloch, fine, you know, you take your solo. And Henry comes up with, honestly, one of the great ballad guitar solos of all time, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, the quote from McCartney uh, from his book, The Lyrics, uh, it's an absolutely beautiful solo, and I think it was lovely for me to give Henry his freedom when he's been in the band only about a year. It was great for him, too, to be bold enough not only to want it, but to take it. And it is a, it's right. a tremendous solo, and it's, it's a well-told story. person who wrote 
the arrangement, a gentleman named Richard Hewson. Uh, Hewson came into the Beatles' orbit during the early days of Apple when Apple's head of A&R, Peter Asher, uh, hired Hewson to write an arrangement for the Mary Hopkins single, Those Were the Days, so he wrote that. He subsequently wrote the arrangements for The Long and Winding Road and I Me Mine, and then in May of 1971, McCartney pegged Hewson to arrange the orchestral version of the Ram album, later released as Thrillington. That's a, a curious little uh, album to listen to if you ever Absolutely. get the Absolutely. Uh, and still with us uh, and active at the age of 79. Uh, and according to Hewson, uh, about 20 takes were performed over the course of three hours. Uh, he said many years later, leaving the musicians tired and having to assure McCartney that their playing could not be improved on. So I guess he, right. he just kept going through it. Um, but yeah, beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, it was released as a single. Uh, the first big hit that the band enjoyed, it hit number one in the USA. It topped the chart for four weeks on Billboard, peaked at number nine in the UK. Again, like the album, not getting quite as much love in the UK as it did in North America. In Canada, it peaked at number two for two weeks. Kept out of the top spot. There's no accounting for taste. <laughs> Kept out of the top spot by Clint Holmes' Playground in My Mind. Wow, I'm gonna go have. A, I'm gonna have to go listen to that. I'm not exactly sure I know that song. I might. My name uh, is Michael. I've got a nickel. I've got a nickel. Right? Yeah. New. There you go. Man. Yeah. That. <laughs> I'm gonna buy me all kinds of candy. That's what I'm gonna do. The wonders that I find in the playground in my mind. That's just that's sort of in the same category as um, Engelbert Humperdinck yeah. keeping Strawberry Fields Forever out of the first uh, top spot yeah. with uh, Please Release Me. Uh, I'm I'm a little uh, a little older than you, Max, but I, I remember that song. Well, I remember this album being in the charts, My Love being in the charts, but I remember my mom loved that Clint Holmes cheesy song. <laughs> now, uh, love, good or bad, uh, possibly the greatest fodder of all time for music. I would point to of many examples Layla Unrequited Love uh, Beck's Morning Phase a great breakup record uh, this song My Love your first album 2015's You uh, described by you uh, as such 12 songs that deal with unrequited love hope friendship mortality and chasing ecstasy so how does the album sound to you today Eight years later with those thoughts when you released it. You know, I haven't listened to the album in a little while, but I, you know, the songs, obviously, they're, they're in my blood. They're, they're all my songs. Um, you know, I think I spent a good part of my 30s uh, sort of chasing after... Um, what I knew in the first place, I, I, I wouldn't get, you know, like I was sort of addicted to disappointment. And when you're a songwriter, it's almost like you get off heartbreak in a sense, you know, because you're, it's, it's dramatic and you're, 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 you get home and you sit down with your guitar and you're having this quiet moment with you, the guitar and a sheet of paper. And, you know, you're writing about, your state of mind and whatnot. And I think I sort of enjoyed it for a little while in my life. But 
um, you know, I think in the end, um, it, it's a great inspiration for songs and it's a great, it's great fodder for, for songwriting. But, you know, sort of like McCartney in, in the early 70s, when you look at the happiness you can get from a, a great relationship and a great home life, it, there's a lot more to be gained from that than there is, you know, spending nights heartbroken and dramatic and, you know. Uh, but yeah, it, it, that album, You, really comes from a, a place of of heartbreak uh, after the breakup of a seven-year relationship. And uh, I mean, I love breakup songs and I love songs that are born out of difficult periods. But if you're constantly... Uh, chasing that or if you're addicted to that sadness that that can become a little bit dangerous as far as I'm concerned are the albums that came in tough situations. McCartney, Band on the Run, being in Lagos and all of that. Um, the, the death of Linda while recording Flaming Pie and then Run, Devil, Run. But, you know, do you have to be miserable in order to create great art? I, I don't think so. And I think that great art comes from good and bad situations. And so that's what I guess I matured into uh, getting into my 40s. But yeah, you was a period of great heartbreak. And there are some there are some heavy songs on the album. And I, I've asked other artists this too, and I'll ask you. It's always curious to me... Uh, you really you put yourself out there um you know that song is you your emotions uh you've written it your thoughts you know, some pretty deep stuff why why do that i think it's therapy and i think that um you know how some people will um you know share their every state of mind on Facebook or on social media. I think doing it through song is just, it's the same sort of thing. It just has more, you know, I guess it has more artistic merit or whatever you want to call it. But I mean, really, that's what it is. It's, it's sharing a state of mind and hoping that other people relate. And of course, people always relate. No matter what you write about, you're not unique. You're not experiencing something that someone hasn't experienced or isn't experiencing uh, somewhere else in the world. Give it a listen, folks. It's called You, and you can find it on Max's Bandcamp page. It's from 2015. Uh, I would say a couple scenarios to listen to and under. Uh, one would be at night, after you're home, pour yourself a last 
drink, put it on, a really nice chill down album. Or uh, one of my favorites, put it on on Sunday morning, early in the morning, uh, make your first I cup love, of coffee. I love Sunday morning records. And I think Red Rose Speedway is a great Sunday morning record. It you is, know, it is. It, it really is. Uh, let's get back to Red Rose Speedway. So we come yes. out of uh, My Love and we go to Get On the Right Thing, uh, one of two on the record that have been uh, kicking around from the Ram sessions in New York City. What say you about this one? I absolutely love Get On The Right Thing. I really love it. And to me, it feels like a, like an anthem, like a more subtle anthem, but it feels like he's basically saying what they said with the word on Rubber Soul or All You Need Is Love. He's basically saying, get on the right thing, be positive. All at once you get love on your mind and you take it as a sort of a, um, a message to George and John, who who seem to have a very sort of dark and cynical uh, view of things and, and very dark and cynical memories of their, their heyday in the Beatles. And I think Paul is saying they were wrong, you were right, I was right. Get on the right thing. Be positive. Look at the lights, the bright side of life and, and just be happy appreciate and and that's what i hear on that song and um it's not necessarily one of his great songs um but i think in the context of red rose speedway it it really works and it's another it feels like another opening song it's like we've had the opener then we had a really quiet ballad and now we're getting back into it we're we're warming back up and we're we're starting to rock out again and that little piano pattern that opens the song which he'll later reuse on power cut and then on let him in years later but it's that you know ah uh, yes it's driving and i love it I absolutely love it. It's that thing he's doing with his left hand on the keyboard and just playing chords with the right hand. I, I love it. It's pure, pure Paul. Are you a keyboard player as well? I, I am. Um, you know, by no means am I any type of great uh, player. And this past year, I released an album called Play McCartney, where I pay tribute to McCartney. And uh, the pianist I worked with on that album, Malik Rashan, now that's a great pianist. The guy just sits at the piano and uh, I play him 15 seconds of a, of a song and he'll, you know, jam around it and just, you know. So I'm, I'm fairly limited in my uh, keyboard approach. But those songs get on the the right thing let him in are the kind of songs that i love to play because it's that basic sort of bass that you're doing with your left hand and then you're doing the melody with the right hand it's it's to me it's pure mccartney and i and i love that approach to his songwriting my, my question about that is is uh, you know mccartney generally regarded as one of the great rock and roll bass players of all time so i imagine if absolutely I, so if i said to a bass player i said you know can you re they, they might go well i can't really replicate he's so good i can't i can't really play bass as well as him but my question is so are he's 
is his piano as great as his bass or is it a little easier to replicate if you're just sort of a medium skill player i think it's a little easier uh there are exceptions you listen to his piano playing on martha my dear from the white album and that is some very impressive piano playing i don't you know. think i don't think that's him you don't think that's him? I don't. I, I, it's funny that you. We're going down a rabbit hole here, Max. But I love doing <laughs> this. But but I was I was talking about that with somebody else who plays the piano, and, right? And they said there's no way that's him because the level of of playing that that you know based on the other songs you hear him playing on, right? There's just no way he would have been able to have replicated that. He says it's George Martin. Right. Well, you know, it's not impossible. It's not impossible that it's George Martin. And George Martin was technically a, a more gifted pianist, I believe, than, than Paul is. I think Paul's a natural. I mean, he's a natural musician. There's no argument there. But yeah, it might have been, you know, you hear him playing a bit of Martha, my dear, in Get Back, That's right. uh, the Peter Jackson film. But then again, it's not... It's not a full performance, and it's not it's not played with the exactitude that it is on the White Album. So you know what? It may be George Martin. It may be. <laughs> we'll never know, Max. We'll never know, and we, and we truly never will, <laughs> no. because you know that Paul is in no rush to let us know if it was George Martin. He's in no rush. Uh, get on the right thing. Uh, it's got some real bounce to it, some real energy. Dave Spinoza, the great New York session player, plays the electric, electric guitar on it, and it was considered for release as a single towards the end of 1971, because they had it there in the can. Let's put this out. Uh, for some reason, they shelved that plan, uh, and it ended up on Red Rose Speedway. Uh, so there you go. That's uh, that's how it ended up there. But good, good, solid tune. Solid tune. Good, solid tune. I don't think it would have been a hit single, though. I don't. I I hear it as a really great B side. I don't hear it as a great lead single. To be perfectly honest about it next track on the album is one more kiss and what jumps out of me are just the the lovely performances mccartney with the great vocal denny sywell with some beautiful brushwork on the drums and then henry mcculloch with his that sort of country inspired one, guitar two, work Kiss is there are no harmonies. It's Paul on his own from A to Z. No Linda, no Denny, and no Paul overdubbing some harmonies. And yet, it has a sort of you could hear the Beatles doing it, sort of, you know, it kind of like a maybe a slightly country pastiche a little bit. Yep, maybe. Yep. You, you could kind of hear the Beatles doing it, and I'm really surprised that he didn't go the Beatle route with it and chose not to have any harmonies. It really, truly is just him singing it. And it's a great vocal performance on his part. It's really excellent. But it would have had maybe a side two of help, maybe rubber soul type of feel had there been harmonies on there. And again, 
I feel that that may be a missed opportunity. I mean, I love the recording and it's fine as it is. I mean, the album turns 50 this year. Who are we to say, oh, he should have done this. He should have done that. But there might be a missed opportunity there. I think harmonies would have complemented the song. Uh, a lovely quote uh, from McCartney. Mary is his uh, his daughter. Yes. Uh, he says, Mary was three or four around this time, so just a little kid. And you know how fathers often fuss over their kids. So I was fussing over her. She was a really cute baby. And I'm fussing away going, give me a kiss. Come on, give me a kiss. And she'd get fed up with me and sort of go, Dad, all right, but only one more kiss. So I got one more kiss and a song. Uh, it suggested a country and Western thing. And I was thinking uh, when we listened, back to it this is when he was talking uh, uh during the release of the archive edition of the album he said i was thinking when i listened back to it a country singer should cover it uh, absolutely lovely little feeling to that song and a cute story yeah absolutely and i think uh, you know i have stories like that with my nieces you know where i was like oh come on what you know just give me a kiss give me a kiss so i when i read that story it really made me smile because i was like yeah that that's a kid a kid gets tired of you know being fawned over and it's like okay dad but one more kiss and then that's it i'm out of here i'm off to play <laughs> last track on side one uh I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, I often get a lump in my throat listening to it uh, yep. because of the story behind it that, that I'll share in a few moments. Uh, Little Lamb Dragonfly. You know, upon first listen, I didn't think very much of this song. Back in 2000, I guess, when I got that CD copy at HMV, I, you know, it was, it was pretty, but I didn't think that much of it. But with time... And also uh, reading the anecdote that you're going to share with us about the lamb. Uh, it, it just, to me, it's a bit of a masterpiece. I have no answer for you, little lamb. I could help you out. But I cannot help you in. Sometimes you think that life is hard. It ticks so many boxes. Uh, originally tracked in New York City, so this was from the uh, the Ram sessions at CBS Studios. George Martin did the orchestration for it, which is just beautiful. Uh, here's the story from he's told it a few times, but this is from an interview that he did in uh, February of 1988 with Musician Magazine. Uh, quoting McCartney, he says, "We were up in Scotland at my sheep farm, which all sounds very lovely in the postcards until you get to lambing." Of course, a few of them die. It's life and death, and a lot of the farmers just don't want to get involved. They say, right, and they just chuck them over the wall. But you can't help it if you're a bit sensitive, particularly in a household full of children. And there was one lamb that we were trying to save. The young ones get out into the weather, and they collapse from exposure. And you find them, and you bring them in. We stayed up all night, and we had him in front of the stove, but it was too late, and he just died. Uh, if you love yeah. animals, which I do, 
Uh, I've had dogs all my life. You know, it just, the, the line, I can help you out, but I cannot help you in. Just, uh, right. it, it just breaks my heart. You know, when you, yeah. when you've seen an animal in pain and that's, that's what the song is about. It was initially, uh, the demo he did was intended for, uh, the, the Rupert movie that he wanted to do, the Rupert the Bear movie. Um, mm-hmm. but just, just such a, a beautiful song and the harmonies. There's, there are lovely stories behind many songs and, and that's one behind this McCartney song. Um, I'll put you on the spot here. Off the top of your head, tell me a story about one of your songs that you carry around. I have a song on my second album, an album called Rock, Paper, Scissors, which I put out in 2017. And there's a song on there called Good for a Song, which um, was a, uh, you know, one night affair, a one night stand kind of story. And... uh, we both told each other uh, that evening that, you know, chances are we'd probably never see each other again because um, we just gravitated in completely different spheres and different worlds. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, at least this night will be good for a song. Who's to say where this will go? came to me in the moment uh, well you know this this will be good for a song and then i made it the title of the song good for a song i i'm a big fan of of, of that song in in terms of like my own work and i'm happy with how it came out and i got a chance to get um lily lankin of the uh mcgarrigold family uh, Caden anna mcgarrigold she's the daughter of anna mcgarrigold and i got her to sing uh, harmonies on that recording which was a great honor because she's on martha wainwright records rufus wainwright records Marig- uh, mcgarrigold records and i'm such a fan of that whole family so to me that was really precious to have her on there and just i i let her do whatever she wanted i was like for for that finale just have fun sing whatever you want and we'll edit it we'll we'll make something of it and she she was just absolutely wonderful so yeah that's that's the story i carry around it's a great story i I gotta ask do you ever see the person again um we we actually did uh, see each other (laughs) uh, a number of times later so really uh, it you know it wasn't just a one night affair, even though it really seemed at the time as though it it would be. But yeah, uh, somehow we crossed paths uh, a number of times uh, later. Great story. So go figure. Great. Yeah. So thanks for sh- <laughs> thanks for sharing it. That's a great story. <laughs> so let's pause it here. Uh, we are through side one of Red Rose Speedway, and uh, we'll get you back next time to delve into side two. Sound like a plan? Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Perfect. You can find all of Max's music on his Bandcamp page. Just go to Bandcamp.com and do a search for Max Como. Uh, he's also on Facebook and on Instagram.
If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes for that matter, please consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this little podcast. Any amount helps and you can offer your support if you visit the website and click on the support the walrus button. Uh, Donations have definitely dried up the last little while, so why not be the one? Yes, you. Why not be the one to turn the tap back on? Uh, I really do appreciate uh, any donation, and it helps to keep the podcast commercial-free, and I use the money to offset my operating costs. So a place on the web, uh, some editing software, a little bit of equipment. So there you go. That's what I use it for. And I managed to keep it commercial free. So again, if you'd like to help out, if you can afford it, then please click on the support the walrus button at the website. Hey, by the way, before I let you go, if you're a big Solo McCartney fan, uh, and I certainly am, there are a few other episodes you might want to give a listen to in the series. Go back to Series 2, Episode 14, and Mo Berg of The Pursuit of Happiness does a terrific job digging into the 1970 McCartney album. And way back in Series 1, Episode 2, Stephen Page, ex of the Bare Naked Ladies and an extremely successful solo artist uh, talked about the 1982 album Tug of War. So they are both there in the archive for you to go and give a listen to if you haven't already. You can follow the podcast on the usual socials on Twitter and Instagram. I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul on Facebook. Do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and give us a follow or a like. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at the.romicast at gmail.com. That is the period, romicast at gmail.com. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels, always a big help. That is it for now. I'm Paul Romanuk, and I will talk to you later on. Do you ever get tired of being